Thank you for joining us for another edition of Retailistic. My name is Deborah Weinswig, CEO and founder of Foresight Research. And I am here with Andrew Smith, co-founder and partner at Think Uncommon. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Tell everyone hello. Thanks for having me and g'day. We are going to talk about our calendars. We're going to dip our toe into retail real estate, talk about the REITs, loyalty, metaverse, live streaming. Andrew, nice to be back again. How are you? I am fabulous. How are you? I'm actually surprised to see you're at home because I've seen social media posts that I feel like you've done all seven continents in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> it definitely feels like it. Well, somehow right back in like late 21, when you're like saying yes to everyone, you're like, there's no way all of this is going to actually happen. And But <laughs> it all is happening. So, you know, here, here we are. So yeah, it's been a, a whirlwind, right? With the uh, shop talk in Vegas and then World Retail Congress in Rome and then heading out to LA and then Michigan to do some ICSE continuing education and wrapping that, you know, kind of a few weeks done up with the NRF gala back in New York, which was actually amazing, meaningful, you know, so, some incredible, like really talent of the future as it relates to re- the retail industry and seeing, you know, I would say the the whole industry come out and support was just, I mean, almost overwhelming. And yeah, I think that's, you know, leading into from what we've we've talked to a few conference organizers today, they're like in the last two weeks, they've had, I think kind of maybe it's coming off of a, you know, the success of some of these bigger, you know, events, but just right, people's desire to be in person, which I think was maybe different than we all had expected right back in 21, where it's like, yeah, it's been great, the virtual, you know having a better balance. But I think, you know, truly people want to be, you know, at least kind of testing some of their ideas with other people right now. Yeah, I don't know, what, you're, sure. what are you seeing? It's, well, no, much the same, I think. There's been this pent up demand, but I think we kind of subjectively view it through our own lens, which is like, I'm excited to get back and I might do these one or two things of which, you know, they might be a little bit more than I would normally do. And that's therefore just seen people everywhere. Like, you know, Shop Talk, this was my first Shop Talk, would you believe? Um, cause I wow. basically, I got to the U S like moved to the U S and COVID hit. So I, I'd, I'd never had a chance to get to shop talk. So this was my first one and I adored it. It was fascinating. And we'll get onto that in a minute, but it was packed to the rafters. Um, and I was, you know, it was, it was really, really interesting to hear people feel like this almost collective sigh of things feel a little normal. Um, and I haven't heard any horror stories after the event. So that must mean it all went okay. <laughs> But yeah, Rome, like, but what's it like in Europe too, comparatively? Well, Europe was phenomenal. I think that, you know, first of all, what ends up being, I think some of the differences, you know, at World Retail Congress, at least there's not, it's a kind of more Eurocentric for sure. And, you know, you, it's a really like a kind of a content research driven conference. And so, a lot of it is right. I would say you know these these deeper conversations, and you know there there's also more time because there there's a smaller audience, and the you know I think with shop talk I almost felt like a pinball on a pinball machine, mm-hmm. right? And and here it was it was really kind of more like a table tennis, if you will. I you know I think that it with regards to being in Rome, where I would have normally expected to see more tourists, especially right like ahead of Easter, you know, that was definitely, you know, somewhat deafening, I have to, I have to say. Mm. And, you know, we went into, went on like a retail tour as part of the Congress and and talked to a lot of the, you know, 
mall owners and like Renaissance, which is a big department store. And, you know, they're all trying to figure out how to adapt to a more local customer with the idea that some of these tourists, you know, won't be back in the near future. And, and, you know, they're, they're just going to have to think differently about how they, you know, kind of who their customer is. Mm. Maybe it's a, a lot more hyper-local. It was really interesting. We went to like an Ikea and they were talking about how frequently their customers come in and, you know, they're putting in these like really kind of um, almost the, these urban core stores, which was fascinating to see how the consumer reacted and, and what they bought and how they bought it. And, you know, this idea around sustainability and kind of, you know, that, you can think differently about the product you're buying. And, you know, there was a lot that, you know, with this announcement in Europe about kind of the, the end of fast fashion by 2030, mm. which is not that far away. It was, there was a lot to talk about. I, I, will, I, can uh, imagine. I, I will tell you that. I'm going to have to be uh, biting my tongue and try and not talk to you about food and wine culture, which is my favorite reason to be in Italy. But like what, like, it's really interesting to see all of the legislative stuff happening, particularly around sustainability coming from Europe. Like what, was the conversation like around those, you know, we've had kind of, we've had a toe dip in the water here in the US with the New York Fashion Act, but like in Europe, obviously it's it's pretty significant. How's everyone reacting? What was the conversation like? Well, speaking about food and wine, there were major food shortages. I mean, it was very evident that there are some challenges along the supply chain because every meal that came up, every restaurant, like, you know, if you're ordering off the menu, much of the menu was, you know, not available. And I think that, you know, definitely made for a, a very interesting kind of approach. I'll say sustainability ended up being, I think, a bigger part of the conversation than anybody had expected. Mm. And, you know, as, you know, Europeans are in some ways living that more as part of their daily life. But it, you know, even I think for you know, those of us who were kind of coming in from outside of Europe, you know, there, there was, it was kind of like the, the fiber and the fabric of every conversation. And there was a lot around kind of like re-commerce around, you know, this, this idea of, um, kind of the, the right to repair if we're looking at hard goods. I mean, they, they really looked at it from like a hard goods side and a soft goods side now, right? With the end of fast fashion and the right to repair this, this idea around, you know, if you're a retailer, how do you maybe do more with less, right? Lower kind of top line or fewer units. Do you have a higher AUR? And just, you know, I mean, I think that the role of retail personally with Web 3.0 is changing completely and that it'll be more of a, a data play, I think, than the retailers are realizing at this point, which certainly can be in higher multiples and all kinds of other amazing things. But I think that, you know, sustainability is, we're, we're still earlier in the conversations and I think many people realize. And it's interesting, I'm actually uh, speaking with Alibaba's um, CMO next week, Chris Tong, on, you know, really looking to, to China because of what they've done in such a short period of time on sustainability and how that's really kind of impacting, you know, one of the world's largest, you know, retail and consumer markets. It has been really fascinating to watch how much they've been able to accelerate it. I know it's a really different world. You know, market-driven legislative, like willingness to legislate and and make law has been, you know, it's they are different environments. But what they've been able to do in a short space of time is fairly incredible. Um, and it's yeah, like, and I mean, around foods, uh, like on the food side as well, because forty percent of food grown ends up in landfill, 
And there's, you know, any one of a number of diff- different reasons. And what's so interesting is, right, they're they're doing a lot more in terms of, you know, growing in greenhouses, growing in sites. You also don't need pesticides. And, you know, if you want to talk about just kind of, you know, the quality of the food, however, however you want to look at that, but also just kind of having, you know, really truly organic uh, as, you know, as a way to to think differently about, you know, I mean, hey, their their supply chain is really important because, you know, your apples aren't going to stay <laughs> stay stay in the fridge for four weeks, right? You've got maybe four days. And that is a whole kind of different challenge when you're, you know, when you are doing more kind of organic produce and whatnot. So I, I think there's a lot that we can learn and it goes back to how do we translate kind of what we learn and try to, to the rest of the world. But I do think there are some really interesting learnings, especially right now, and especially as we are starting to see early signs of food shortages. And you know, uh, we'll see how that plays out throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, it's um, I, like you've, you know, I must admit, I've been far from bullish about Meta and Web three and all of those things and conversations we've had in the past. But you know, moving on from from sustainability as a topic, one of the other things that you've spoken a lot about in the last couple of weeks has been that, has been NFTs, has been metaverses. And it's been, you know, as a person who very proudly wears a a badge that says strong opinions, but very loosely held, it's been fascinating for me to learn from them. Um, What's your rundown on it before I give my kind of, I've got so many questions for you, basically. Um, from reading through those articles, and I can't wait to hear of it. But what's your, like, what's your summary, I guess, of what you've learned and seen and and spoken about? To be fair, because you're one of the loudest voices on this in retail at the moment. Every retailer wants to have an NFT for holiday 22, and I think that if their shareholders are asking for it, you know, it's critical from a valuation perspective. But you know, NFTs, you know, the the actual creation, you know, depending on you know how many bells and whistles you want, um, because it will complicate your smart contract. But the the actual creation, right? I mean, we of course I can do this. Um, it, it it's not expensive. When you start to bring in the legal and the compliance, it can get you know to be you know kind of several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, you know, for retailers, it's not like doing a live stream where you know you're like, okay, it's like a drop in the bucket, and you know we we drive sales. The you know to date, pretty much in retail, every NFT has been a, a screaming success. I, I do worry when we we hit that one that that isn't just kind of what happens with the mm. the market overall, and I still think that the whole like form factor, right? You know, we've talked to many startups who are doing different kind of you know goggles or glasses or whatnot, but this this whole like really immersive, you know, kind of from a, a headset perspective, I think we're still many years away, and the you know this idea of you know. I don't even know if you want to call. I, I've never personally cared for the word omni-channel because I just think it's retail. Join, join and the club, it, 100% agree. Yeah, and so, but I think now, right, if you've got physical and digital and digital bleeding into metaverse, this this idea that you have now more ways, and and to me, physical and metaverse, you know, are are much more complementary because you're you're engaging in some kind of body, right? You are you know, kind of, whereas, you know, online is very kind of for, for now, very 2D. And we're even, oh, I mean, we've met some companies that has been fasting who are starting to, and this is another way for retailers. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm so bullish on retail right now um, that they can use the outside of their facades in the real world from a kind of AR perspective. And, you know, we're starting to see some of the CPG companies who are like buying space 
almost like the building is a billboard. So like these things that, <laughs> I mean, you know, like the, the pace that I feel with which, you know, right now I, it's like when I first kind of learned about live streaming, I'm like, it's like every day, you know, it's, it's additive and it's interesting and it's, it's incredibly constructive. And there isn't, I don't think there is, I mean, Hey, right now I've, I talked to one of the largest CPG companies the other day they're doing, which I would not say is what we would um, suggest, but they're doing 20 <laughs> different live streaming pilots. Oh, wow. Which, because I think there are so many different paths. I mean, I would, you know, if, if you want to kind of go that route, I would say three to four. Uh, I also think actually doing things maybe um, linearly versus kind of all in conjunction with each other. But, you know, ultimately there's, there's a lot to be said there. I don't know. I mean, what have you seen? I mean, you were at Shop Talk. There's been a lot of talk since then. You know, what are you seeing from that side? Uh, I mean, it's much the same. Like, there's so much. Um, the thing that I I am like, you know, you mentioned just then that you're so bullish about retail, and like my answer is me too for sure. Like walking away, the the willingness. It feels like we've just been re-energized. That we've got this willingness to run at ideas, to try things, to be confident, to invest in innovation and, and new things. Whereas you know, retail for last, I mean, probably really the last decade, we haven't been willing to do that. And I think, you know, I, although, you know, the metaverse and live streaming and all of the things that are out that are cool and getting all of the attention aren't for everybody in every way, there's something there for you for sure. But it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the answer. It's an answer. What I love about it though, is it's encouraging people to try stuff, to just take an idea and run at it and see what happens, which is, you know, I mean, that's what I preach. That's like, what's why people hire me is to bring me in and say, Hey, how, how do we run up more ideas? So I just love this concept that there is an energy now in retail to bring to bring that out. And like sitting at Shop Talk, there was the thing that kind of gave me, and you know, uh, you know, Marie actually mentioned this as well in her in her one of her talks um, from your team about this. Like the, we're having these confident conversations around the role of stores, whereas two years ago we had to defend why they existed, and like what a turnaround. <laughs> What a ridiculous turnaround. Obviously, all of us who were, you know, who were in the know and understood it and in the industry knew that that was always a stupid conversation anyway. But like now we're, we're able to proudly actually be back out there saying stores are awesome and let's do some really cool stuff with them. And not only are they awesome, we're actually going to recreate them in this digital sphere as well in a way where we can, you know, we don't have the boundaries of this pillar is in the way or whatever else we do when we get store designing. I think that's really super cool. And I think that willingness to experiment is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Many retailers who closed, you know, significant portions of their store base are looking to either, you know, if if those spaces are actually still available, even just doing kind of pop-ups or whatnot, but definitely a, you know, a real focus on on the physical versus what I I've, I've seen. And then I I do think we're, you know, for those retailers who are global, you know, Europe right now is is a challenge. I'm not sure what you've heard or, or how you're thinking about that. Um, yeah, Europe's definitely a challenge for like lots of different reasons. The legislative environment environment is becoming more complicated. Um, I think you know the board, like the the situation that's there is kind of making people feel like they can't take as many risks. But just as much saying that, my diary is full at the moment of clients who want advice on where to expand. So outside of their traditional home borders and go into markets like the US and potentially even Europe, uh, but mostly predominantly around the UK, I think at the moment feels like the safest entry point and bet because of the, you know, the political environment in in the rest of Europe right now. But it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But the fact that there's people so bullish on it that they're willing to look at new markets 
um, especially the US market, which traditionally, for for example, brands from Australia and brands from the, the Asia-Pacific region have always been nervous and excited at the same time about the US market. It's very hard to get into, but everyone's kind of running at it right now, which is fascinating. You know, we're, we're starting to see a lot of interest in South America and specifically Brazil. Uh, that's been uh, a day trending topic in the last few weeks. And if we think about where there is growth, where there are very interesting concepts, you know, where there is a passion around creativity, that's that's been fascinating. And, you know, I would say that is the, you know, and Japan. I mean, there those are two markets that certainly I haven't heard of as being kind of the top of everybody's list. But right now, that seems to be where at least a lot of our clients are focused. I don't know what you're seeing outside of kind of like the US and Europe. Um, look, I think that, I mean, Japan's a great call. Uh, well, in fact, they're both great calls. Japan's a great call because it's, it's again, trying to do, it's trying to reinvent itself. J- Japanese retail is very unique, very interesting. Like it's obviously got a bunch of Western influence and Western brands that are there, but it's traditional kind of retail brands and local brands do have a unique kind of methodology in their retailing, which is, you know, beautiful storytelling and, and cultural storytelling. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see. It's also obviously just a huge market. And therefore, if you have uh, brand recognition, you can do pretty well. Uh, but Brazil, I think, is is fascinating. I didn't, I wasn't on my radar until I listened to a podcast actually from Scott Galloway early in the week where he was talking about Brazil being about to have their next moment. Like they've, they're ready to kind of, they've got the economic environment. Uh, there's an energy in the commercial, in the commercial sector and the retail sector that's just ready to just uh, launch. Um, so it's going to be, int- certainly going to be interesting to watch. Um, outside of that, I think, you know, there are, um, across Asia Pacific, I think there are plenty of brands, particularly out of Australia and New Zealand right now that want to try and use this opportunity of the last couple of years and a, a few extra dollars in the bank to try things and experiment, you know, into, into the UK markets, the Northern Ireland markets. Uh, and again, as I said, into the US and North America, um, which I, you know, I, I'm interested to watch. There's been plenty of sort of stories of, of brands, particularly Aussie brands, obviously close to my heart, who have tried to make the leap across the pond into the US market and and it's not worked out beautifully. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if people are willing to try different things and, and bring a different um, a different kind of you know brand experience that isn't just going to try and replicate what they have back home. What are the challenges that you've seen them face? Is it you know from a global cross border perspective as they've tried to make that leap? I think the biggest ones are probably the you know, the brands that have the most trouble are those who are curator brands, so who are selling products that are already available in the market in particular, who try and bring the special source of a brand and a retail experience that maybe works in their home market, and then they don't have enough differential to a brand that's here. Those that have done well, though, are those who try and create it around an experience and try and create something different. I was really bullish, actually, about the Anko experiment, which was uh, an, an Australian brand that popped over into Seattle probably the wrong market, but essentially it looked exactly the same as Pop Shelf now that Dollar General's having huge success with. So, you know, the model itself you could argue was was right. They just maybe didn't do the entry that well. Whether they didn't invest enough or whether they went to the wrong location is probably the big question. Um, but then, you know, there are essentially brands that come and drop, you know, the Bunnings is a great example, an Australian hardware chain that tried to get into the UK. They dropped $2 billion on that run. Um, and it, you know, it didn't go very well. Uh, and then you see other Australian brands like Chemist Warehouse who thought, let's just take a run and open up a, a, you know, a discount pharmacy in Ireland. 
and they've dropped very smaller, much smaller amounts of money, certainly not in the billions, uh, and it's actually working pretty well So because they're able to be a bit more flexible and agile as opposed to trying to open up an entire retail real estate all in one go. So I think you know, what works is find what's going to make you different, you know, be willing to walk away from your traditional business model because it's going to be different in different markets, but also just start small, try something different and pick your market very, very cleverly. Don't just pick a cool city that your CEO happens to want to travel to. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, when Home Depot went to China, they were also challenged. And I think that just because, you know, the housing markets differ so much by geo, what do you think was the challenge that Bunnings faced? Um, I mean, there's the Australian culture and the British culture. Uh, there are so many similarities and there are so many differences. And I think they, they tried to... Um, lift up the business model that worked in Australia, drop the personality that Bunnings has. Bunnings is kind of a cultural phenomenon in Australia. It's, you know, it's part of daily talk um, and it's, you know, embedded, kind of similar to the Home Depot Lowe's things that are here. It's like, you know, either you're a Lowe's person or a Home Depot person. We won't talk about the Lowe's attempt to make it into the Australian market. That went just as badly as the Bunnings went into the UK. Um, But then they just essentially tried to just do the same thing, but with a British accent as opposed to really understanding the market when they got there. Um, you know, having a really smart business model, you know, retail model from end to end with great supply chain and all the other bits and pieces that that were working for and does still work for Bunnings in the Australian market wasn't enough because you can't just cut, you know, cut the cookie and put it in and see if it works. You've got to understand the local market better. You've got to um, get local people to lead the local business who understand the local market and local consumers. They're not going to know who Bunnings is, no, no matter how many billions of dollars you have in the bank. If I'm a consumer who wants to buy a shovel and I don't know you, I'm going to go to the brand I know. So you've got to give me a reason to change. Uh, and that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and it needs to be very thoughtful. How important do you think that loyalty is when you know consumers are considering a, a new retailer, especially, you know, with, we can use Bunnings as an example, right? If they are loyal and there's some kind of points program or, or whatever the, the program might be. Do you think that's, you know, we're seeing a, a significant focus on loyalty. Do you think that that's holding people back in terms of switching or they think about switching costs? Humans are, are like, loyalty is one of those things nowadays where it has to be cons- consistently earned. It can be dropped like that um, if you do something that kind of irks me um, as a consumer. Um, it depends on how, I would suggest that there's probably a really beautiful graph we could draw that kind of talks through how deep I am in the program. So if I think of like frequent flyer programs who are probably the most consistent, you know, loyalty style programs on the market, the depth of benefit for someone who has been there for a long time makes me incredible, makes it incredibly difficult for me to leave. Um, whereas kind of a traditional retail loyalty program, which is I can keep earning essentially $5 vouchers here, $10 vouchers here, I'm much less sticky. I'm more likely to be able to kind of be swayed. Um, but you know, we still know, and we've still got plenty of evidence that shows that price is still a very important part of the consideration. You know, my social value, those types of things. I, you know, I I need something different. You need to give me a pretty strong reason to to go, to leave on a permanent basis. But something exciting though can get me to leave temporarily. So you've kind of got to think about loyalty on both fronts. If I want to steal someone from who's you know incredibly loyal. Just give them something exciting that they can forgive themselves for not being loyal to the brand that they are normally to come to just try me out. Then after that, I can start having a conversation that's a bit deeper. So I'm, I'm going to like double click on that quite a bit. I'm, you know, we, we, of course, I do a lot around loyalty. Um, first of all, right, there's, there's points programs. There are 
let's just call it, you know, dollars back programs. And that could be a percent off or whatnot. And there's also, you know, kind of philanthropic, right? Where, you know, kind of I spend so much, I allocate, you know, 2% to these schools or whatnot. How, how do you kind of, and obviously this ends up being fairly consumer specific, but you as a retailer can't offer, you know, multiple different types of, you know, programs. What do you, like, how do you think about this from like a 10,000 foot view? Uh, I mean, great question. I think it's probably, um, I mean, you'll have the data to back this up, right? But like my gut feel is that it's the same as any enabler. Like loyalty is an enabler and an enabler for growth and success, just like a new point of sale system is or a new store environment or the metaverse. Like they're all enablers to me kind of growing. Um, and to do it properly, I need to deeply understand what actually my customers give a crap about. And it might be that it changes over t- it might change by market, it might change by product set, it might change, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things. But what matters to a Nordstrom customer is going to be different to what matters to a Dollar General customer. So, you know, how do you, um, and you don't want to overload people with choice, because if you do have that kind of blend of the three, generally speaking, you're going to have less impact because consumers will get confused. Whereas I know what, um, you know, what I'm getting into, I suppose, if I'm, you know, if I've committed to one of those three things. And it's really just going to depend on your product. Amazon has Amazon Smile, which donates a whole bunch of money, but it doesn't necessarily shift the, the you know, consumer opinion around Amazon being a philanthropic organization considerably. And it certainly isn't impacting loyalty and lifetime value as much as Prime. So like there's, there's you know, and th- that's one of those rare stories where actually both of those things can kind of coexist because they're talking to different customers. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What does the data tell you? What have you found as you've kind of delved into it? I mean, we did a big analysis, which I was curious, between like Sephora and Ulta. And when you looked at loyalty program engagement, significantly higher engagement on the Ulta side. And I think the idea is that, you know, I know if I spend a, I get B back. So it's very tangible as opposed to, okay, I get these points and then maybe the product is in stock and maybe it isn't. And maybe, you know, it's like a maybe, 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 as opposed to like definitive fact. Mm. And I think that like kind of that fact versus fiction does seem to be pretty critical. And I do think that what's really interesting now is the whole kind of Target and Ulta relationship. The CEO of Target was just honored at this kind of NRF Foundation Gala, and you know, kind of spending some time with the team. I was, I said, oh, I said it's impressive how you guys have connected, right? Kind of the target, you know, kind of um, credit card program to the Ulta loyalty program and whatnot. And they were like, how did you know that? I'm like, because I did it right as a, as an analyst, right? You, you try to like live all these things. And I was like, that must've been really hard. And they're like, you have no idea how hard it was. And I'm like, I, I actually do. I can, I can only imagine. But now if you think about it from a consumer perspective, I get all the benefits of right. Kind of what with Ulta and right where you get kind of the dollars off and then you're getting 5% if you have a target credit card. So you start to think about, right, the consumer thinking about the and, and, and. I get like this benefit and this benefit and this. And that starts to, right. So I, I think that we have thought about marketplaces and platforms in in one like vernacular. And, and I think that in some ways, maybe we either took that from kind of the East, right, with, you know, uh, looking at a, whether it was an Ollie or a JD or a PDD or, you know, kind of WeChat. But I, I think that, you know, as I'm starting to think now about platforms, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, it is maybe it's more, and also the other thing is, Andrew, we're hearing, I think we've talked about this a little bit on one of our prior shows, 
this idea around shop and shops, right? We had the whole conversation mm-hmm. around kind of what Lowe's was doing. And I think that if you start to, and we're hearing actually the other thing that's interesting is when you look at these multi-brand retailers that mon like, you know, the the vendors and brands are interested, right, in the the physical and also the virtual aspect of these, you know, it, it is, I want to call them platforms versus marketplaces because I think the platform creates a marketplace. And, and I think that this is really different. And I think this is really new. And, you know, we're having, you know, brands come to us to help them think through kind of what, what marketplace to kind of become a part of, but it's really kind of what platform and they're also going to have a physical component. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying it. And I have to say, it's like, it, it almost like hurts your brain to think about some of it, which that's the kind of work I love, right? <laughs> it's very like, it's, uh, I mean, if it's hurting your brain, none of us have a hope. Um, the, it's very astute though, I think, cause like the idea of, um, like that, that the complexity of building that in is going to be nuts for Target and Ulta, but then to be able to then having to, you know, Target's now having to do that now with multiple brands, like there's surely someone sitting at Target now building some kind of API, you know, unlimited API loyalty system that can just, no matter what brand comes in, you can kind of aggregate it. But you start, but see, you bring up something very important. So that this is like, so something else I've been thinking about a lot is that these retailers in some ways, because a lot of what's working for them is homegrown. And so they're becoming technology companies. And it's not, I'm not going to say that there is any, well, there, there really isn't any data scientist or engineer I've ever spoken to who's been like, I want to work in retail, right? They kind of end up there. And once they're there- Well, they're missing they're, out. They're, yes, they definitely <laughs> are. But there is a passion, right? Once they understand, I do think the industry can can help itself by talking about you know the the benefits right i mean you're you're literally like creating a new a new construct in many cases and and it will live on i think much longer than than some of the rest of the work that they you know they think that they want to do when they they go to school but what's fascinating is you talk about this idea of target then creating this api you know there's probably a lot of other things that they're able to do and and they have to also think about right what right who is their customer how is that customer change right they're they're fulfilling so much from from the store and utilizing their inventory that you really need to even if you think about yourself as a virtual first company because of how target fulfills right which is kind of store first you have to have a physical presence and so, right, almost turning, and I don't really like funnels, but I, I have to say during last year's, I've thought about them a lot more uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, and, you know, you almost have to like turn it upside down and think about, right, how how do I enter the the target platform? What does that mean? What's my sales potential? And, you know, you, you see companies like an open store who are like going out, right? Like, and I, I think, Andrew, you know, I've talked about this, right? You, as a, as a small brand, right, we work with a lot of small brands at Retailers United, they go in, they put in, right, name of their company, EIN, revenues, upload their tax forms, and they get a bid within like a matter of minutes. You know, that's that's really interesting. And to think about that almost from like a, a retailer platform perspective, I mean, open store is technically a platform, right? 
this is this is a, a real change, I think, in terms of direction of retail. And, you know, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, kind of a, off of the fork, but, it, it, you know, we had heard about like, all, you know, a lot of these companies, I, I heard this first out of China where you, you had these kind of folks coming in and buying up all of these kind of Amazon sellers, but I feel like this is something different. And I, I'd love to kind of, you know, double click on this because I, I feel like there's something more here and I've just scratched the surface. So I'm not sure how much you've thought about this and if we can like think about it here together. I think, no, I think you're right. Like, I think it's at the very least, it's going to create a very different retail model for places like Target, like a department store, even malls, if they're smart and fast enough to respond to it, I think they could probably be here. You know, we're seeing plenty of startups in the kind of what I hate the term, but like retail as a service kind of providership thing, traditionally aimed at like DTC brands who want to kind of dip their toe in physical retail. But more and more, you know, as a brand, as, as you know, why there's not that much of a difference between a really cool activation in a retail as a service kind of showpiece store as a target. And, you know, if target doesn't have someone sitting there going, we need data scientists, we need this system up and running so products can come to us and we can, not, you know, we used to sell end cap space and premium space in shelving and aisles. Why not sell everything? Let's sell data. Let's sell you know, um, you know, you just give us your product. We'll come up with a merchandising strategy. We'll come up with everything. And it's, you know, this is your fee that you, you know, that we attract as part of the service. Like, I think if there's not someone working on that now, there damn well should be, but especially at malls. Because I think Target's smart, they're growing. Malls are, are not. And they need something to differentiate themselves. And I think that's a really smart way to do it. And I think, you know, one of the things that always impressed me about Westfield was that they really, you know, created like brand names around their malls, right? Like I want to go, right? And, and and I was always surprised because I I felt, I've always felt that, right, your, and it may not be your local mall, it might, you know, with autonomous vehicles, I always thought you could be shopping a mall, you know, five hours away that, you know, you get in, you take a nap and you show up and, and, and you're there. And so I I think that this opportunity, not only for malls to to brand themselves, but to build this community, to build it within like an app. But I do think that one of the challenges is, and if you if you've seen any tech that does this, I, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's dive into this. But how does the retailer encourage, or how does the the mall, how does the the REIT encourage the retailer to share data with them at even just a local level so that they can kind of then create more of this community? And those are some of the things because do the retailers ever feel that they're in competition? Do they worry about the, you know, do they worry about sharing data with the REIT because they're going to charge them more? I don't know. How do you, how do you think about this? Well, I think, I think this whole thing needs to be disrupted. So like, cause the, right now that, you know, traffic into a mall equals the mall provider essentially being able to charge higher rent, which is not what I want as a retailer. However, I do want the traffic at the same time. So, that, so there has to be some kind of some better coming together here. There are definitely people kind of trying and just experimenting in these these places. Um, you know, Leap is probably the most prominent. You've got Showfields and places like that that are trying to build these ecosystems of where we, the person who owns the real estate and the brands that are represented in there are kind of part of one bigger system. Um, but I, I think they're they're. They're, or A, they're a little bit different. They're not exactly, they're clearly not going to be the same as what this looks like. But I think the first mall provider that does kind of lean this direction of building an ecosystem that is much more about shared value 
and bring it, you know, you're not just renting space, you're actually being part of this community. And this community means you get shared data. We get a whole bunch of cool, you know, insights from that that help you change the way you retail. We get to, com- you know, come together for events and things like that, that, you know, are going to draw consumers through, you know, there's going to be something bigger than what it's historically been, which is essentially just transactional real estate. And it's, you know, you, you, you will know this. I certainly know this as being, a, you know, in my retail days running a retailer, you know, my relationships were tetchy at best with my mall providers. And that includes brands like Westfield, who I respect tremendously. Um, but, you know, they've always been incredibly difficult relationships and the value is always been relatively um, invisible and or perceived negatively by the retailer. And, you know, that's no longer tenable if you're a mall provider if you're a real retail and you're in, if you're in retail real estate so you have to think differently about this but it's it's a community approach it's going to be a teamwork thing it's not going to be on one person to try and reinvent it or one side to reinvent it we've got to come together i think to win this because i think a consumer uh, especially in a community is going to adore having this local space that is a community space where i shop I think consumers, especially, we've seen that in the last six months of kind of the remer- re- the um, resurgence of, of physical shopping. People still want that community feel, but who knows? I, I, I don't know how it happens. I don't know what the catalyst is. I mean, I I think that the the catalyst is that retailers are, you know, thinking about their twenty three retail portfolios and what those look like and what matters. And I do think that. I mean, we're very much pushing for this idea that the REITs need to offer value-added services. And so I was, you know, kind of, I spoke to a few of the REITs this this past week and, you know, it was like one of those, like I mentioned it, it's like, there's this like silence on the other end of the phone, right? Because I think, you know, it's kind of maybe tried it, tested it, didn't work. But I, I think that we're in a different place right now. And I do think that you know, retailers need to be able to simplify. They want to, you know, I mean, hey, if you are the mall manager, you know that mall better than anybody else. And so I think that this idea of kind of coming together for a common purpose, I I think it's really interesting. And then, you know, even just like some of the trends we're seeing with, you know, mall real estate and, you know, where the consumer is or isn't. I, I mean, I think that, I think there's like a data component here as well in terms of how the REITs can help the retailers on a local level, right? Like, hey, in this location, right, we're seeing, you know, women's denim is, you know, kind of, you know, we, we need more women's denim and this, you know, kind of, you know, geo, we need more men's like button down shirts. I mean, those kinds of things, which they, you know, the data that they could have, you know, could make a big difference. I, if, can you imagine the power of a, an entire mall's data being democratized? Like from the retailer side and the mall side, like just... As it like a data scientist's dream, surely, if they looked at all of that stuff, because you, know, you could have not only the mall's understanding of who's coming in and when and when which car parks fill and who's driving, who's getting public transport, what's the demographic, all of that fun stuff. You're also then getting the lot like the next layer of detail, which is like when they walk into stores, where are they going, what are they doing, what are they looking at, what are they caring about, and you know, just as importantly, most of those brands will probably have some data about who isn't, so who is normally a shopper at that brand who isn't shopping in that location. And then you could delve into why, like, it's just an incredible amount of data power that we are completely not utilizing because we've always had these turf wars and like the power of being able to bring that in, I think is just incredible. 
but you know, I don't. I, how again? The the point of how we do it, like it's going to take someone to come to the table first in a way that's genuinely authentic. And I think any any REIT that's kind of said we've tried this and and it didn't work, probably tried it from the perspective of being able to either maintain or increase rent, not from how do we increase community success, like all of us in one go. And I think. Now, that puts some people in a better position too, right? Because there are plenty of retail brands who are also retail real estate owners. So you think of the malls of, tar- you know, the Target malls or the Macy's real estate areas, et cetera, where they actually own more than their own estate. You know, they have this already and are utilizing it already. So like if we can elevate those stories, that could act as a motivator. I Yeah, I mean, I think grocery anchored is very different than kind of traditional department store anchored real estate. And yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think back to, and maybe they were just too early, right, with one market, um, right, with Westfield, which, you know, spun that out. But they they had that idea early on. I'm just not, you know, I, I still, I mean, I, I I do very much understand kind of why it didn't work. My question is, was it was it timing or is there there's something more? What do you think? Uh, I think I think timing, I think both probably is the short answer. Like timing, but also not, we, we weren't, we didn't have the, context of the last three years of consumer behavior and, you know, the, the general context to motivate us. I think if that same situation happened now, I think the outcome would be really different. Um, but I mean, I mean, who knows? We like, we've all got different views. We've all, we've got different shareholders. We've all got different sports strategy decks to care about with different KPIs on them. There's got to be some way though, that mutual benefit benefiting like activity together is going to you know, help us all. But who knows? I, commu- people coming together and working together for a common good when generally speaking, you can both make more money from the other person not winning is a really hard environment to negotiate in. Well, it's also, I think there's the fear from the retailer side, right? That their, you know, their their data, their secret sauce might be exposed mm-hmm. to their competitors. And, you know, we had done a big project in 20 for a non-US-based um, REIT, but you know, may- maybe some of it was geography, maybe some of it was timing, but it goes back to this whole idea around like value-added services, whether it's you know human resources or concierge or you know whatever other like we actually had a mall you know kind of a REIT-based loyalty program, and that was you know with that with the exception of kind of two luxury properties who you know brands who that wasn't for them per se, everybody else in these malls, like it, it, it was fascinating. I mean, if I go back and I mean, that was two years ago already. And so, you know, we were, we were in a unique period of time. Uh, you know, if we all go back to 2020, but I don't know. I mean, Andrew, you've, you know, you've certainly spent time in many different geos. Do you think it's geography? Do you think it's timing? What What do you think it is? No, I don't. I definitely don't think it's geography. I, th- I think this is a commonality, uh, or this has commonality across the planet and in retail. Retail's converged so much globally now that it's kind of that we will we face very very similar challenges. There's definitely nuances, obviously, and particularly shopping difference and shopping behavior differences. You know, with higher levels of digital nativity in Asia versus the US, for example, all of that kind of stuff. But in the in the whole, it's very much the same. But I want to like weave the thread back to at the start of the conversation around loyalty. Can you imagine the world as a shopper where you actually don't care where you shop? You're just kind of connected with a an aggregator that is both physical and digital. That I can go to my local mall 
and shop and be rewarded, you know, and at an a level that is kind of aggregating all the traditional benefits, which can then translate to the way I shop digitally at the same time, you know, that's going to keep me in that kind of the boundary of whatever that ends up being. And if that's my local mall, if that's my local target, or if that's my local whatever, that's an incredibly powerful story. It's no different to why cable was invented, you know, managing all of the television channel subscriptions was impossible. So cable became a thing. We then got rid of it with streaming. It's undoubtedly going to happen again where someone's going to aggregate streaming um, because we just prefer humans love a path of least resistance. And if you can give me that path of least resistance, I think, um, you know, I'm going to probably take it. I mean, it's interesting. You start to think about like a bolt, right, where... Hmm. I just feel like they've they've scratched the surface of, I mean, even just their messaging, right? I still, you know, I mean, I you know, I mentioned to retailers, and retailers like who don't know. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, it's like this whole idea, right? Kind of taking out the friction around payment, right? All of your payment information, and so so if you come at it from that perspective, right, where. And they are, I, I have to say, I've been because I'm 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 still like, well, there's there's the whole data play, and they're like, absolutely not what we're going for, right? <laughs> like they're like not doing it, not even thinking about it. And it's not like, you know, it's like never, nowhere, not happening. And and I think that that's such a strong message because, right, you're under, right, they, they've got data around kind of how people are paying, how they're switching payments, right? Whether it's, you know, kind of, and, and you know, now as they're, you know, kind of moving into the crypto space as well, I'm enabling people to pay that way. I, I feel like there's, there's something more to that than than what has been, you know, I, I just feel like that there's a model there that, you know, could be much stronger that, you know, if applied at the REIT level to enable all these retailers to think about, okay, we're, mm-hmm. you know, the, the data is being owned. I guess the question goes back to, are you comfortable if the REIT owns the data versus if it's a third party, and that actually may be, see, Andrew, this could be like our next startup. I was going to um, say, but, let's not release the episode until we've patented all this, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think that but that's actually what's like very interesting, right, in terms of thinking about the the pain points and the challenges and, you know, going back to right when, when Ryan kind of came with the whole idea of Bolt, it was just like, and for him to like work on it for seven years, I think that is, you know, I, I don't even know what that is the definition of probably insanity on, on many levels, but to be able to say, I know this is a pain point and I know I have the opportunity to fix it and, and to not like lose sight of that. I mean, to me, right. I mean, one market was, you know, feels like at least a decade ago. Yeah. Um, the, but this idea that they saw this pain point, right. That, you know, the malls, right? That's I think why they they you know kind of separated from Westfield so they could do this for others. But this idea that you as the mall owner have no real idea of what's happening outside of the retailers telling you and you becoming close with the store managers, right? There isn't like this kind of like data aggregation. And I think some of them have tried with loyalty programs and whatnot, but it just has an outside of like the food court. And and going mm. back to I, I'm, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. In the food court, why isn't there like one, right? Why do we have to pay at all the different kind of, you know, food, you know, you know, if you will, kind of food vendors, as opposed to like, why isn't there like one checkout, right? If you think about it, that would be much faster. I could then like grab my drink at one. I could grab my French fries at another. I could grab like my salad at, you know, and I could actually 
first of all, you know, optimize my, what I want to, to eat. I could then also think about like, maybe it's just a loyalty program. I mean, maybe, maybe what we do, maybe Andrew, what we do is we start with a food court. That's <laughs> where we start, right? Start you know, small, I mean, build big. That's right. <laughs> I like this. I also I'm love like, the so, idea of your meal there, by the way, a drink, a salad and French fries. I think that oh, is, a, that like, is balance right there. See, that is if balance. I could get, if my dessert could be marshmallows, that is like my <laughs> ideal. I didn't pick and we're going to start with all right, those, there you go. Those are, those are like, I've got all the food groups. I've got coffee. I've got, you know, green vegetables. I've got French fries, potatoes. And then I've got, you know, sugar with my marshmallows. So Perfect. that is like See? my ideal meal. See, that's my problem is I just go straight for the French fries with the burger. That's the problem. Oh, uh, I take, I, I would actually take some tofu in there too. I, I, I do I, like I that. So, tofu. you know, it's, it's yeah. somewhat balanced. You I know, lived in the- Japan for a year and that, that introduced me to the world of tofu and I've never been able to walk back. Oh yeah, no the the good with the bad. All right, so we're we're kind of coming to the the top of the hour. What should we think about for next time, Andrew? Because you know, there's we covered a lot of ground. Oh, I have one, and I, I'm I'm ready for a rant on it. I have a huge question for you, and I want to hear from you next week. Is um, there is this? I f- I call it the social reckoning. So there's this huge shift of movement around, like kind of, do we legislate? Do we not legislate? Etc. For social media and social media kind of mm. having. Well, what about the whole thing with, uh, I mean, oh, I can't believe we talk didn't talk about, about Elon Musk. Musk and Twitter. We didn't, we We're didn't the only podcast this week in the universe that has not talked about Elon Musk. And I'm, you know what, know. I'm proud of us for it. I am, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, I think maybe that's the, we, 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 we can refer to him as like EM, but we won't even like that. That's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we got to like, if we could, uh, you know, he, he, he have our secret named. handshake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just, uh, he just like got owned by the Twitter board who just released a poison pill on him so he can't buy any more stock. Anyway, that's the that's the end of the Elon Musk news for the day. But no, I think the um I think social's having this reckoning thing where at one point and it's probably going to be Europe or potentially like, you know, in the uh, Pacific, so Asia, Australia, New Zealand somewhere there, there is going to be increased pressure of legislation around, you know, data verification of individuals, yeah. the whole idea of bullying, the whole idea of all of this kind of stuff. There's just so many problems there that something is going to happen soon which is going to have a huge impact on social commerce and social commerce is a big part of a lot of retailers. I have to jump in here. I can't even let you finish your sentence because I was at a dinner at Shop Talk and, you know, of course won't, won't name the guilty. And and they were talking about, you know, we're, we're now like, you know, kind of regulating and, and really kind of looking out for bullying. And I'm like, and you, I mean, I actually, I have to say, I, I actually caught my breath and, and I, I, uh, it was good because I I may have said something I would have regretted otherwise, and I was like, "How is this like?" <laughs> Man, you're drinking here. the Kool Aid, whoever you We're are. In March 22. How is this like something that? And so I actually, so my my big take, and like you know, I mean, this is you know, of course, like the best is at the end. <laughs> is that <laughs> I teaser think, for next week? I know I, but I think that this goes back to Web 3.0. I think that you know these these kind of data aggregators are dead. That is like my you know kind of if I were to tell you where I would short, and, and it's good. I actually recently kind of you know um, mothballed my licenses, so I can now like talk much more freely about valuation and what I really yes. think. Yes, yes. Um, and um, and for those of you who still have your licenses, you actually can have them for five years outside of an investment bank. But that's you know hey. you can you can email me for all the details on that. Deborah's so, tip of the week. Exactly. That's actually a good one. So I think so. So Andrew, I'm going to one up you for next week. We need mm-hmm. Andrew's tip of the week next week. Along with we got to figure out the potholders thing, which I think you know oh, we're yeah. still obviously. Yeah, that's we're true. Still, yep. 
We need those up online <laughs> we, immediately. We should make it. So anyone who emails us, we've got to like get the pot holders. And I think, you know, we, we may just, you know, what's the next conference you're going to? I, I have uh, to jump in question. here. I can't even uh, let you finish your sentence because Australia, I was at a dinner at Shop um, Talk. Which is in Sydney and, in July. You know, of course, won't, won't name the guilty. Um, and yeah, they were talking about, you know, we're we're now oh, like you know what you know kind of regulating and I, really I kind of looking out I'm for bullying and I'm like twice at Rice and, and you, in May. I mean, I actually I have to so say I, I actually Chicago. caught my breath and and I I uh, <laughs> don't tell them I said because that because I uh, I may have said something I would have regretted otherwise. And I've, I'm having and a great conversation like, with Jason Leaker, who's uh, like, the head of ESG <laughs> for AT and T. We're in March 22. How is this like? Something that, and so I actually, so my, my big take, and like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, of course, like the best is at the end (laughs) is that I I, think I've had, I know, I, but I think they are wonderful. This goes back to Web 3.0. And we've had great conversations in preparation already. And I'm data aggregators are dead. That is like my, you know, kind of if I were to tell you where I would short. And, and it's good. I actually recently kind of, you know, um, mothballed my licenses so I can now like talk much more freely about valuation and what mm-hmm. I really think. Yes, yes. Um, and um, and for those of you who still have your licenses, uh, you actually can have them for five years outside of an investment bank. Very That's, excited. you know, hey. you, can, you can email me for all the details on that. Deborah's so, tip of the week. Exactly. That's actually a good one. So I think, um, so, so Andrew, I'm going to one up you for next week. We need Andrew's tip of the week next week. Along with, we got to figure out the potholders thing, no, which I think you know, we're still- No, the people are fantastic, and I've had great changes with, with both <laughs> we, uh, Ashlyn and- We um, should make it. So anyone who emails us, we've got to like get the potholders. And I think, you know, we, we may just, you know, what's the ooh. next conference you're going to? It's, it's interesting. My hometown, there's actually on the the second day, on Wednesday, there's an entire, I was like, who would have ever thought, like, it's literally like the one city, there's an entire like deep dive on- you know, the, you know, kind of what's happened and like the urban kind of renewal and whatnot. And then oh, I love I'm that. there on Thursday. I'm on, I'm in, um, you know, kind of one of the councils with the CEOs of many of the REITs and we're bringing in three of our, you know, kind of innovators. And so that'll be incredibly interesting. So I'll, uh, oh, I'll, I can't I'll wait for that one. I know I'll sneak peek you there. And then the following week, I'm spending time, uh, ironically, with, with ICSC. So, you know, we're, we're Switzerland here. ULI, yeah, ICSC. You know, a little bit of both. And so I'm part of the North American um, research, you know, kind of task force. And so we really do a lot of great research and and, and think about, you know, as I, 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 I really enjoy, right, kind of putting things on paper and kind of having the opportunity, as you know, Andrew, to share because, you know, from a research perspective, when you have that opportunity to kind of think through, I think it's great. So I think we are like completely over time, but it was like the best was at the end. Exactly. And, you know, it was, I, I think we're going to go bleep, bleep, bleep. <laughs> Um, Andrew, <laughs> of course he knew he was speaking at Rice. Hundred percent. Rice, of course. Eleventh and twelfth, McCormick Place, right? So you know, it's like you know, and, well, and we're you, gonna have you, uh, your see your your brain's much better at that stuff. I've like gone <laughs> deep philosophical into the debates and the conversations I'm about to have. <laughs> And then I'd be like, but I definitely need someone in the morning to say, oh, but you've got Andrew to go to Chicago today. showing up until July. So if you want him there in May, we have got some significant problems. So. Oh, man. I, uh, and this Andrew's is... still like virtual. He's like, I'm just going to go look for that Zoom link. Oh, shoot. Yeah, don't I just have to wake up in the morning, put a shirt on with board shorts and then rock up to something? That's how it works still, right? Oh, man. This is why you read the news, people. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this is great. All right, Andrew, until next week. 
where I think that we will be going over our uh, our mutual calendars, maybe at the beginning. I promise so that- I'll be I will be fully aware of all of my calendar uh, activity and, and ready for any Deborah question. I appreciate it. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this week. We definitely covered an immense amount of topics. Uh, please like, subscribe on your favorite podcast channel of choice to Retailistic to listen to more from Andrew and myself. Next week, I think we're going to be talking about rice and what we're going to be speaking about with Andrew, of course, focused on ESG and my fo- myself focused on sustainability as well, but also with a look to live streaming. Thanks so much and have a great week. Ciao.